and welcome to the Path 11 Podcast with your hosts, Mike and April. We're really excited about today's show. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Eben Alexander III. After decades as a physician and teacher at Harvard Medical School and elsewhere, renowned academic neurosurgeon Dr. Alexander thought he knew how the brain, mind, and consciousness worked. A transcendental near-death experience during a week-long coma from an inexplicable brain infection changed all of that completely. He has spent the last seven years since his near-death experience reconciling his rich spiritual experience with contemporary physics and cosmology. He discovered that by probing deeply into our own consciousness, we transcend the limits of the human brain and of the physical material realm. A pioneering scientist and thought leader in consciousness studies, Dr. Alexander has been a guest on Dr. Oz, Oprah, and many other national and international media programs. His books, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, and The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife, have collectively spent more than two years atop the New York Times and international bestseller lists. We'd like to welcome Dr. Eben Alexander to our show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We're really excited to have this phone call. Well, thanks for having me here. It's a real joy to be with you. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's kind of funny the way that we found you. We were talking about really wanting to get some more stories of people who have had a near-death experience. So one night, I just kind of did a Google search and was just looking for people, and yours was the first that popped up. And one of the things that I really liked about your story and one of the reasons why I really wanted to contact you is because you do have the medical background of being a neurosurgeon. And what fascinates me the most when I hear about near-death experiences are people who have been in the medical field and have it and can kind of prove, and in your case, and we'll get into this a little bit more, of how the brain really couldn't um, function in a way to explain all of the experiences and what you remembered coming back. Right. That uh, certainly gets attention in the medical community. I'm often asked to speak to medical and surgical groups because they recognize this for what it is. I mean, this uh, is a very miraculous recovery, and in fact, I should have had no experience at all, given the destruction of my neocortex, and yet I had a very robust spiritual experience. So it is fascinating. Yeah, it really is, and I really enjoyed reading that part um, in your book. And then the other... Uh, nice synchronicity that I started laughing was when I was reading your book, all of a sudden I get to the chapter where you are um, referencing Robert Monroe and Hemisync Music. And uh-huh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with our films, but our second film really documents a lot of the Monroe Institute and Robert Monroe's life. And we uh-huh. go into the finding of the binaural beats in the Hemisync Music. So... Nice. I just, I just started laughing. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't well, believe that it. Is, that is a subject very near and dear to my heart. In fact, I work very closely with uh, Karen Newell and Kevin Cossey, who make up sacred acoustics, uh, because they are creating some of the most uh, powerful audio brain entrainment that I know of, and that's why I like kind of sharing um, sacred acoustics with people. And Karen and I go around giving workshops um, to help people get into deep meditative states, uh, all through the use of differential sound frequencies, and that you know much of that work is thanks to Robert Monroe and his decades of uh, hard work investigating audio 
uh, capabilities for inducing very uh, deep transcendental states of consciousness. So that's what we're doing with sacred acoustics moving forward. Right, right. And I know that, um, you know, our audience members who are familiar with our films, there really was no connection, even knowing that, you know, you mentioned that in your book. So I just thought that that was a really nice uh, synchronicity there. That <laughs> yeah. Nice. So one of the um, most profound lines in your book that I absolutely loved was when you wrote, a story, a true story can heal as much as medicine can. Well, I would say that's very true. I mean, that's what this is all about, is sharing experiences, you know, human experience, and that's what takes us a lot deeper into understanding the nature of our existence. Exactly. So for some people maybe who are not familiar with your books or have not heard of your near-death experience, I was hoping that you can kind of give our listeners an overview of what your story is. Yes. Well, basically, I had spent uh, more than 20 years of my life as an academic neurosurgeon, more than 15 years uh, teaching at Harvard Medical School. Thought I had a pretty good idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness work. Uh, and then in November of 2008, uh, early in the morning, I was driven uh, deep into coma over just a few hours uh, from a rapidly progressive and very aggressive and absolutely should have killed me case of uh, gram-negative bacterial meningitis. And, of course, many doctors have been through, uh, uh, you know, the medical details of my case, and uh, they're really kind of shocking. To go into coma that quickly put me at about a 10% chance of survival early in the week. I was put on a ventilator on three powerful antibiotics on the IC, medical ICU, uh, and things only got worse. By the end of the week, I was down to a 2% chance of survival, no chance of recovery, uh, in fact, if I was in that 2%, they estimated I would, best case scenario was that I'd spend a month or two in hospital, then be transferred to a nursing home in a persistent vegetative state, and then die there a few months later. That's why they recommended stopping the antibiotics. And it was soon after that that I started coming back to this world. Uh, but when I did, it's important to point out my brain was so devastated that uh, I had no words, no language no memories of Evan Alexander's life before coma. All I knew when I came back to this world was where I had been deep in coma. And it was a very rich, ultra-real spiritual journey. It started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm. But then I was rescued uh, by this slowly spinning clear white light uh, that came towards me and it came with a perfect musical melody. And the notes of that melody were important in returning through that pathway uh, several times in the future because I kept tumbling down from the spir higher spiritual realms back to that earthworm I view, but I could uh, many times go back up through the portals uh, by remem re remembering the music, the notes. And the first time I passed through that portal, out of the ugly, unresponsive earthworm I view, I, I went into this beautiful, idyllic, ultra-real gateway valley uh, that was lush with life, very crisp and alive and vivid. I was moving up through it because I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. It was one of millions of butterflies, colors beyond the rainbow, and they were all looping and spiraling in these vast formations. We would fly down into that lush greenery, and I remember uh, blossoms, buds, flowers opening up very richly and dynamically even as we flew through. I mean, everything in that valley was alive and creative. There was no... Uh, death or destruction at any place. It was kind of like Plato's world of forms in a sense. It was an ideal world of our 
spirit and soul and where we reunite with our higher loved ones, our, our higher souls, and with departed loved ones that go through our life reviews uh, and then uh, plan our next incarnations. And from that realm, I went to higher and higher realms. I remember seeing how time flow in this realm is, is very much um, uh, a uh, kind of a stage setting because there's a much deeper form of causality and time flow in that spiritual realm that explains more the ascendance of our souls towards oneness with the divine. Uh, now, on that beautiful butterfly wing, there was a beautiful girl beside me, sparkling blue eyes, high cheekbones, high forehead, wide smile. She never said a word, but her thoughts and, and feelings and knowings came directly into my awareness. Uh, and the messages she gave to me, which I wrote down into words weeks later when I came back, were a central message of proof of heaven, because they're a message for all souls. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. Um, you will be taken care of. You have nothing to fear. Uh, and also she told me that you can do no wrong. But of course, at that point, I already knew what she meant, even though I didn't explain it as well at that point in Proof of Heaven. And it's because this is soul school. We're here to learn and teach these lessons of love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy. But God gives us the gift of free will, so we can choose otherwise. Uh, but know that if we choose to be selfish and greedy and hand out pain and suffering to others, that we need, need to make amends for those kind of transgressions and for not fully sharing the love of others. And we make those amends if we don't do it in this lifetime, we do it in that life review. And the life review is crucial to understand. This is a concept that goes back thousands of years in near-death experiences, and it has to do with feeling the impact of our actions and thoughts on others. Uh, and certainly any of those uh, actions and thoughts that are dealing out pain and suffering, we have to become the other beings to feel it. That's why the life review is such a great example of how this is really soul school. And this is all about uh, humanity coming to learn the most challenging lesson of our time, which is really to use that infinite healing power of unconditional love to heal ourselves, to heal others, you know, uh, heal our, quote, enemies, unquote. I came to realize that many who I had seen before my coma to be my enemy or nemesis was really just a near and dear soul mate, and we were just teaching each other especially difficult lessons. And from that realm, that butterfly uh, gateway valley realm, I entered into higher and higher levels all the way out to what I call the core, infinite inky blackness but filled to overflowing uh, with that uh, infinite healing power of unconditional love of the creator for the creation. And um, in that core realm, all of the higher dimensional multiverse throughout all of eternity had been shrunken down into this complex oversphere as part of the lessons about what was to be conveyed to me. Important to state that throughout this journey, I was amnesic for the life of Eben Alexander. I really had an empty slate without having any words or language or any of the religious concepts. Every bit of that was gone. Uh, and initially, I explained all that when I came back to this world because I'd had such a destructive meningitis, meningoencephalitis, that had basically shown my doctors from the first day that my neocortex, the human part of the brain, had been devastated and was unable to support any kind of hallucination, drug effect, or dream state. And that, of course, is what made my journey so uh, 
uh, spectacular in terms of its uh, ability to demonstrate the, the lessons, the prime role of consciousness, that uh, consciousness is fundamental in creating the entire universe. The brain does not create consciousness at all, which, of course, was what I had believed along with my conventional neuroscientific uh, belief system, which is known as uh, basically reductive materialism, but that brings us straight into the hard problem of consciousness, which is that no neuroscientist on Earth has the remotest clue how to explain a mechanism by which the physical brain might create consciousness. And that kind of thinking is going the way of, oh, the Earth is flat. Oh, the sun goes around the Earth. Well, likewise, the thinking in neuroscience that the brain creates consciousness uh, and that our existence is birth to death and nothing more is going uh, the way of those other um, discarded modes of thought uh, concerning the sun going around the earth and the earth being the center of the universe. And we're coming into a much grander knowing now. And that, of course, is a big part of Proof of Heaven and the second book, The Map of Heaven, is to explain how our scientific paradigm is, sh is changing dramatically around this. And also it's part of getting deeply into answering the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, which is just about the physics of reality all around us and how for 115 years it's been trying to teach us that uh, consciousness is fundamental. And that's very much what my journey showed very clearly. Uh, and then, of course, I went through several stages of that, falling back from that core realm, all the way back down to the earth where my view. But that's when I came to realize that the musical notes of that melody that came with the spinning white light would conjure up that white light again. And it provided a portal to me several times to re-enter that ultra-real gateway realm that was far more real than this uh, material reality that we live in. And also to ascend through those angelic choirs that were in that gateway valley. Uh, once again, sound, vibration, frequency, providing portals to the higher and higher levels all the way out to the core. And then there came a time when, as they told me, I was not there to stay in that core realm. And so the musical notes no longer conjured up the, that beautiful gateway to take me up out of the earth where my view. And at that point... I was aware of thousands of beings around me in, in these circles going off into the mists, and they were all kneeling and murmuring and praying. And that praying energy was bringing me the same unconditional love that I had witnessed in those ultra-real uh, aspects in the Gateway Valley and all the way out to the core realm, that infinite oneness. And at that point, I saw six faces, and five of them were of people, family members who were uh, there, uh, the last 24 hours I was in coma, so those faces served as a time anchor to help me realize that most of my coma journey, which seemed to last for months or years, must have happened within days one to five of my coma. Mm -hmm. And that was very important in terms of interpreting it and trying to understand it, because for a long time, I thought it was way too real to be real. So in other words, it had to be some vast hallucination of the dying brain, and yet the more I got into my medical records, talked it over with my doctors and other interested neurosurgeons and neuroscientists and trying to explain it all, the more we came to realize it was way too real to be real because it really happened, because it was, could not have occurred in my physical brain at all. And, of course, that's when I came back to this world and uh, uh, came back really the impetus for me to return in that moment was the sixth phase, which was the son of my 10-year-old son, Bond. It was uh, my, uh, his face appearing to me. 
even though I did not remember who he was, uh, at that point, you know, through much of this journey, I thought the journey can continue or cease. It does not matter because I had no memories of any attachments or responsibilities to any other souls. But when I saw the face of my 10-year-old son, even though I didn't remember who he was, I knew I had to come back to be wherever this was for that soul. It was my love for Bond and that sense of connection to him that drew me back to this world in spite of my amnesia for the life of Evan Alexander. Great. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot in there to go in and dissect a little bit. There is quite a bit. Yeah. And I, I, it was like on page eight of your book, when I first started reading it, you were kind of going into more of the explanation of consciousness before this happened. And you had said, if you don't have a working brain, you can't be consciousness. When the sh machine breaks down, consciousness stops. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can agree with this. And I kept reading on and you said, or so I would have told you before my brain crashed. Right. Exactly. And of course... The, the, the big news here is that the scientific community is well along this pathway, you know, of escaping that simplistic kindergarten-level thinking of, oh, the brain creates consciousness, the only thing that exists is the physical world. We're now coming to realize the universe is far grander than that, that it's all based completely in consciousness. All of consciousness pre-exists the Big Bang and everything else about the observable universe. This consciousness is very grand indeed. And, of course, it involves far more than just human life on Earth and just life on Earth. This is a much grander consciousness that spreads throughout vast uh, swathes of, of physical and temporal uh, reality. Uh, and we're part of that much bigger consciousness. That's what this awakening is all about. Right. And I also, you know, you put it quite nicely about why evil is necessary and it was something to the effect of because without it free will was impossible and without free will there could be no growth right that in fact that god loves us so much as to give us that gift of free will and in fact that neuro conventional neuroscience that i worshiped before my coma and i do not use that word lightly but uh, that materialist science pretends that it's the subatomic particles in the brain following the laws of physics and then the atoms and molecules following the laws of chemistry and the cells of the brain following the laws of biology that says all of those uh, entities following natural laws gives an illusion of consciousness. And that same neuroscience would very proudly tell you that no human being has free will at all because it, that conscious illusion, epiphenomenon, is just flowing along by natural laws and that there has not, there's nothing to do there with any kind of spirit, soul, or purpose or meaning in life, that it's all just some great chemical accident. And that, of course, my journey showed me is absolutely false. It's, it's a shocking that, in fact, um, that whole uh, simplistic and false notion of brain-creating consciousness out of physical matter has lasted as long as it has. Uh, but luckily... I would say most scientists that I know in this world already realize that that version of reality is false and they've rejected it. There are still a few in the bully pulpit who have trouble letting go of that very seductively simplistic materialist view. Uh, and of course, they're the ones who kind of try and take me down with ad hominem attacks and whatever else have you, uh, trying to diminish my message. But in fact, this message is far too grand to be stopped. And it's not just me. It's 
It's uh, thousands of other scientists around the world and many journeyers. You know, this is not just about trying to explain a few books on NDEs. What we're really talking about are the hundreds of millions of humans who have had uh, spiritually transformative experiences, who have come to realize that all of this is very real, that we are far more than our little uh, body incarnate, you know, birth to death. And we're all part of something far grander than that. And that's what this awakening is all about. And it's very much about the scientific aspects, too, as much as some of the wisdom that we're converging on uh, is part of spiritual traditions, both East and West, and has been for thousands of years, but also the uh, material sciences, uh, the leading edge of physics and cosmology, likewise, are right there helping with this grand awakening because the materialists that study that kind of thing are right at the front of the line to tell you there's no material to the material world, that it's all vibrating strings of energy in a higher dimensional space-time, but it's nothing uh, like the solid world that appears to us in our human form. But there's something far more mysterious going on here and beautiful and uh, has to do with the reality of spirit, soul, and the divine and that we're all connected as one. So that's, uh, that's kind of the power of the awakening and it will lead to tremendous healing in this world. Right. And do you find that even though this experience happened years ago to you, you know, if you're exposed to this type of vibration and, you know, being in front of these beings and kind of visiting and having all of this knowledge, um, and I think you had said that what was shown to you, you were able to instantly and effortlessly understand concepts that would have taken you for years to grasp. Now, do you still feel like it's that easy to access this experience on a daily basis or as years go on, does the feeling of what you had fade away, or does it stay uh, actually, very strong? Actually, um, the feeling, the memories of what happened deep in coma have been very stable. Uh, and this is something that Bruce Grayson pointed out in studying near-death experiences. Um, and so for me, the memories of what happened deep in coma are as sharp and fresh and real as if they happened yesterday. Interestingly enough, I also had, after I awoke from coma... Uh, my brain was so ravaged that I was in and out of a site of uh, kind of a uh, psychopathological, uh, paranoid, delusional nightmare, in and out of that for about 36 hours after my coma. And those memories, even though they seemed a little more real than a normal nightmare, those memories faded within weeks, whereas the memories from the ultra-real experience deep within coma that was much more real than this material, material realm those memories have stayed very sharp. The other interesting thing is I give, I've given now more than 300 talks to groups about my experience. And uh, when I give talks to general audiences, usually a, about 10 or 15% of the people in the audience will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, I never told anybody this but. And then they'll share a story with me that is so amazing that when you realize the commonalities of these stories, the similarities you realize they're telling us something absolutely fundamental about the nature of our existence. And some of those people may have had their NDE or their shared death experience or their after-death communication 50 or 60 years ago, but they remember it as sharply as if it just happened. Mm. And yet often they haven't told another soul about it. So this is all about taking the lid off and letting those tens of millions of people share their stories to help lift this whole world up. I mean, this is about the fundamental nature of who we are. 
Uh, and that's what I think is so important to keep in mind here. Yeah, I would agree. And you know, what struck me a lot were the three messages that that were brought back from your experience. And I just kind of want to, you know, speak of them again, because they are so powerful. I think if we as humans can almost recite this to ourselves each and every day, that we might live a life with less fear. And you are loved and cherished dearly forever. You have nothing to fear. There is nothing you can do wrong. And, you know, in my practice and what I do, I see so many people that feel so empty of self-love uh, that they are afraid to actually follow their dreams or afraid to have fun and move towards a life that's a little bit easier. And people always seem like they're afraid to make decisions because they don't want to screw up. <laughs> well, I think there's a, a, a lot to that. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why what I recommend to people, and this is a recommendation carried through in Proof of Heaven, even more strongly in the Map of Heaven, um, and that has to do with the appendix to the book Map of Heaven. The appendix is entitled The Answers Lie Within Us All. And this is about uh, the way that I uh, tend to meditate. I try to meditate an hour or two or maybe three hours a day. I've been doing that the last five years. Um, in fact, I will say that no matter what problems one has in their life, that deep meditation going within is a way to uh, solve those problems. It has tremendous power. And the more research we do uh, on, on meditation in a scientific sense, the more we realize it brings great benefits of health, of spiritual health, and of uh, physical, mental, emotional health, because all health is inherently uh, spiritual at the core. Uh, but also, it's very helpful for creativity, very helpful in connecting with the souls of departed loved ones, very uh, useful in connecting with our higher souls and coming to know our life's purpose and meaning much more richly, um, very helpful at, in, in uh, inducing the power of prayer to heal other people. I mean, meditation has tremendous benefits, and that's why I do all of this work with um, uh, Karen Newell of Sacred Acoustics. And people who are interested in learning more can visit sacredacoustics.com but really just any means you have for quieting the voice in our head, because it's important to point out the voice in my head is not my consciousness. Mm. The voice in my head is, uh, it's put in that beautiful book, The Untethered Soul, is little more than an annoying roommate. Roommate, yeah, that, I've read that, that, that book. voice in our head, of course, is tightly tied to our ego. Uh, our ego would much rather see us dead than see the ego dead. That's what we see in cases of addiction all the time. So the ego is not necessarily your friend in this journey, and that's why that little voice in the head, which also happens to be the voice of our logical thinking and rational thought, um, but that little voice uh, can go into timeout because there's far greater wisdom. And I often tell people, you don't have to die or almost die to get any of what I know about understanding of consciousness in the afterlife. But you do have to go within, that you can cultivate this knowledge and this understanding. And that's why the sacred acoustics tones are so powerful, because they're very good at helping people to quiet the little voice in the head, the little you know, monkey mind chatterbox that's sitting there running through grocery lists and to-do lists, and, and also anxieties and fears, and, and just noticing that voice uh, for what it is, a little chatterbox, and being able to put it into timeout. And then... Uh, cultivating our observer self within. That's the real magic of consciousness, is that observer, the witness. And that uh, observer has access to far greater knowing 
than just the little voice in the head. And that's why I think meditation is so powerful here. And these kind of meditations from sacred acoustics are a good way to uh, glimpse behind that veil. I think the veil is constructed within the neocortex. And that's what I saw dissolving uh, in my meningoencephalitis, was that veiling function disappeared and I came into full-blown conscious awareness. And that is something that's uh, available to any conscious being. So you don't have to wait uh, till you die or almost die to come to know this. You can cultivate it. And that's why I encourage people, you know, go to sacredacoustics.com. They have a free 20-minute uh, alm meditation. You listen with headphones. Uh, and as you know from listening to other binaural beat technology, it can be very powerful at, uh, at uh, allowing your conscious awareness to be set free. I love how David Darling puts it. He says, we're conscious in spite of our brain. And that is very much the case. The brain is a reducing valve or filter that limits consciousness. And through uh, using binaural beat technology, and especially I recommend the sacred acoustics of brain entrainment, it enables us to go far beyond that veil and come into that infinite uh, consciousness. It's a very powerful technique, uh, something we're just beginning to understand. But... Uh, uh, it can help us to be fearless and help us to remember that we are indeed eternal spiritual beings that are connected with each other. And that's why it's so important to see that that, that unconditional love, if we can recall that memory of being the subject, being the object of that love, of the creative source. In fact, uh, when we meditate into that oneness, there's really no separation. We are those divine, eternal, spiritual beings, infinitely connected recursively throughout this universe. Uh, and we can each come to know that in deep meditation and recall that love for us. And I came to see in my journey that so much of the world's problems is we don't even love ourselves enough. We think that's the easy part. But in fact, that's the part where, where most of us really don't come through. And the best way to truly love ourselves is to recall that one, oneness and connectedness with the divine and with all other soul and consciousness throughout the universe and then manifest that beautiful unconditional love for all of creation. Uh, that's the love of the creator and we can all manifest that and love ourselves that fully as those divine, eternal, spiritual beings, and then share that love. That's the best way to really bring it into us, is to serve as a conduit for that love for all of our fellow beings, showing compassion, forgiveness, uh, love, uh, acceptance, and mercy. Now, I wanted to just back up and ask you a question before it slips my mind about the sacred acoustic music that you're doing. Um, and you heard many different sounds and melodies during your experience. Were you able to recall those sounds, and do you bring that into the sacred acoustic music for meditation? Well, the short answer is no. I've worked hard to bring back those sounds. As you can imagine, um, you know, in those realms, you must remember, you're not hearing with the ears and you're not seeing with the eyes. Right. And you no longer have the, the, the natural filtering mechanism of the neocortex in place to uh, provide any kind of filtering out. You're, you're into full bore consciousness and the music in those realms is far richer than anything that could be supported in our four-dimensional space-time. Now, that doesn't mean that you couldn't bring back a pale reflection of that music. And 
In fact, I've done some work with groups to do that. Uh, specifically, I worked with a woman named Saskia Moore, S-A-S-K-I-A Moore. Uh, she lives in London, and she has a project called Dead Symphony. If people will Google Saskia Moore and Dead Symphony, they can learn more about her work. But she has worked hard with uh, a lot of spiritually transformative experiencers, including near-death experiencers, to try and bring back some of the music uh, that people witness in those realms. And she's, she's had some interesting findings along those lines. Now, my interest in uh, pursuing this was not to try and duplicate the sounds that I heard, but it was much better than that. Uh, the, the, the main effort here was to actually free up the soul of each and every listener to allow them to have unfettered access to that infinite uh, realm of consciousness and universal knowing that's uh, in those spiritual realms. So these differential sound frequencies actually do that. I believe it's. I would not say it's well understood. Uh, the brain, uh, this kind of binaural beat brain entrainment, was first uh, discovered by a German physiologist named Dove in the mid 1800s, and of course. Bob Monroe did a lot of work with this in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, using differential sound frequencies, uh, inducing uh, what are called binaural beats. And it turns out what we're doing there is taking advantage of a circuit in the lower brainstem. That's a very ancient circuit. It probably arose about 200 million years ago from an evolutionary neurobiology standpoint, about the time when vertebrates crawled out of the muck and about a time when one, one might postulate that consciousness entered the animal kingdom. Uh, but, of course, again, consciousness had always existed. It was just enabling it to function uh, in alignment with a physical brain that uh, is what we're really talking about. Uh, but that, that circuit is a very accurate timing mechanism, and it can uh, time the arrival of waves to the two ears down to about a microsecond level. And uh, that's why it's so effective at then... Uh, modulating the neocortical activity, and, and what we believe is that it um, is able to uh, kind of homogenize or modulate, uh, synchronize the electrochemical flux in the neocortex, which essentially would be taking the neocortex offline, and it allows conscious awareness to break free. And that's why it, it does such a good job of silencing the little voice in the head. The voice in the head is just two tiny little regions, no bigger than the tip of your little finger, uh, within the brain, one of which uh, produces speech. It's called uh, Broca's area in the left frontal lobe. And then there's Wernicke's area that uh, assembles speech and is where you recognize language. And that's where multiple languages can be uh, targeted. Um, and But those are just very small regions that... Uh, can be taken offline along with the rest of the neocortex, and that's what allows our conscious awareness to become much grander. Uh, and, of course, uh, we're still working out a lot of the details of that, and I would say the science of it is not at all worked out. Uh, but the general rule is that's what allows us to escape the veiling function of the neocortex and get such grand conscious awareness uh, in this kind of brain entrainment using sacred acoustics. Yeah, and during that process, is that where the brain is going more into that theta wave? So if you're in theta, then that voice kind of quiets? Yes, uh, exactly. And In fact, what I found out when I was uh, studied by EEG uh, you know, years after my event is I'm kind of living in theta all the time. I don't know how much of that is a result of my near-death experience, 
because by the time that EEG was done, I'd already been meditating uh, daily for about three years. So it also could be the meditation that's done that. But I think the important thing to realize is, for example, uh, there's a beautiful paper that came out of Imperial College in London looking at uh, psychedelic drug experiences with psilocybin, and they used functional MRI to see what areas of the brain lit up or uh, decreased in activity on the psilocybin for the people with the most uh, astonishing and, and ultra-realistic uh, journeys on the drug. And what they found was a big surprise to them. And this is a paper by Car Robin Carhart-Harris that's uh, actually referenced in the bibliography of Proof of Heaven. But what they found is that uh, the junctional areas, the main important intersection areas in the brain that they thought for sure would be lighting up intensely in the people who had the most intense psychedelic uh, uh, experiences, in fact, those areas went dark. And what this is showing us is just like my coma experience showed that by shutting down the neocortex, my awareness became much greater. Likewise, that's what that paper by Carhart Harris out of Imperial uh, College in London shows us about people with the richest, most ultra-real psilocybin experiences have shutting down of those main junctional regions in the brain, not an enhancement. So this is about the brain being taken offline. That's what gives us the most amazing experiences. And that's what the current scientific effort is coming to recognize. Yeah. Now, with, with you saying that you kind of live mostly in theta, I've heard that people who have had near-death experiences, that their quote-unquote psychic abilities tend to rise. And you spoke earlier about that veil lifting. Um, so have you found that being more in a theta brainwave state that you are able to pick up or sense or just have a knowing of things that may happen? Or do you find yourself being more, I guess the word we could, you know, play with the word psychic. Does, has that been your experience coming back? Well, I would say I'm, I'm more intuitive. Uh, I would say I probably was more psychic, uh, especially for, you know, a few months afterward. My brain was really very, uh, impacted by this by the situation, as I said, when I first came back to this world, I had no words or language, no memories of Evan Alexander's life. In fact, when I first woke up in the ICU, my mother, my sisters, my sons standing around the bedside, I had no clue who these beings were. Mm. Uh, and words and language came back very rapidly, literally over hours. Uh, childhood memories came back over weeks. All of my knowledge of religion and of physics, chemistry, neuroscience, and 20 years spent in academic neurosurgery came back over about eight weeks. And in fact, one of the most shocking things is over the next few years with various very specific conversations with people, I came to realize that the memories that had come back to me were more complete than they had been before my coma. And that part, of course, was very difficult to explain, but it has to do with the fact that Memories are not stored in the neocortex or in any part of the brain anyway. All of experience and all of memory is stored in that spiritual space. And that's why, for example, there's a rich scientific literature on reincarnation, on past life memories in children, indicative of reincarnation. Now, I never paid any attention to that literature before my coma, because but because I believe, of course, brain creates consciousness, and therefore any kind of talk of reincarnation is ridiculous. But my journey showed me very clearly that reincarnation is a fundamental part 
of the spiritual realm. And it also, for those out there brought up like I was in a Christian upbringing, I will tell you that original Christianity is very strongly supportive of reincarnation. There's a beautiful book by Dr. Herbert Perrier called Why Jesus Taught Reincarnation that explains that very clearly. Um, but uh, reincarnation is a crucial part of most of the major faith systems, and reincarnation clearly involves memory being stored somewhere outside of the physical universe. Uh, and that's very much the way this world works and very much the way our, our very memories work. Um, and, and this is uh, something that also is coming to light for the, for the medical profession uh, in many ways. There's a beautiful series from the medical journal Missouri Medicine on near-death experiences. It's an 18-month series. It will be published as a book coming out in a few months. It's called The Science of Near-Death Experiences. And it's all peer-reviewed medical literature that really supports strongly the spiritual nature of, of NDEs and how that is a crucial part of understanding them. It completely uh, bypasses and leaves behind the simplistic falsehood of physicalism trying to pretend that the brain creates consciousness out of physical matter. Mm -hmm. And also during your experience, you were able to tap into and see that there were multiple dimensions, that it wasn't just this one universe, but that there were many. Right. That, that was a huge part of it, was seeing that whole collapse. And as I said earlier, the, our, our four-dimensional space-time was the lowest level collapsing, but there was what I call deep time, which was an ordering of causality for our spiritual, you know, our, our soul groups on those journeys of ascendance towards oneness with the divine. And that causal realm is called deep time. Uh, but even that would collapse down. And there were other spatial and temporal dimensions on the way out to the core. The core was as far as I went. And that was absolutely complete oneness. And in fact, it, I often liken it to being on the edge, the boundary, the event horizon of a black hole. Because in fact, there was this uh, strong sense of oscillation between witnessing that first layer of separation and then becoming that pure, infinite, eternal oneness uh, at the core of all that is. And it's something that obviously uh, cannot be put into any kind of earthly language that makes any kind of sense. But again, that's one reason why I'm such a strong proponent of meditation, because people who have a prolonged practice of meditation, I'm not talking about trying this 10 or 20 times and making a decision on it. I'm talking about a daily practice for years. You start to definitely get a very... Uh, profound ability to get into that oneness. And of course, this is what uh, spiritual journeyers, gurus, psychics, mystics, and prophets have been telling us for thousands of years. But the truth is that all human beings as conscious beings have access to the very same realms, but it does take doing the work. Um, of course, some people are gifted, like with a near-death experience, it's very profound and kind of leapfrogs them uh, ahead of where they would be otherwise, but that doesn't take away from the fact that each and every one of us can cultivate this kind of ability to go within and see beyond the veil. Right. Now, after you have kind of written the book, is there anything that you might have left out or a part of your experience that you didn't share that you wish that you did put in or was more information kind of came to you after you wrote it? Well, you've got to remember that proof of heaven really represents the state of my knowing four months after coma. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, it was published about three years after coma. And then I published the second book, The Map of Heaven, um, five years after coma. And 
the map of heaven is more showing the commonality of these experiences and how, you know, to remind people, we're not just talking about the heavenly tourism genre, as the New York uh, Review of Books would put it, but we're talking about the nature of reality for all of humanity as represented by millions and millions of experiences that are out there. And that's what we're here to explain, not just, you know, Evan Alexander's little trip to the afterlife. We're talking about tens of millions of souls alive today who have been to the other side and come back. And what I want to do is help this world share those stories. That's why I love speaking to medical groups and nursing groups um, and surgical groups. I get asked to give these talks uh, to a lot of uh, groups of healers. And uh, that, that helps to take the lid off so that they will let all of their patients share their stories. And that's what this is really all about, is that kind of awakening. Now, it turns out that, uh, yes, there are many things that I've discovered uh, in, in this time. I mean, to have a near-death experience like that is a profound awakening. But so much of it seems far beyond understanding. And so a lot of my journey in the last seven years plus has been trying to understand how it makes sense with my scientific understanding and my overall worldview and my meeting of other people and of other journeyers. Um, and so, in fact, uh, we're, Karen Newell and I are writing a third book now that tries to really spell out all the things that I say in so many of my talks. And, of course, many of my talks are out there available on YouTube and out there for the world. We're just trying to help wake this world up. And uh, it turns out that a third book is absolutely essential just because there's so much more that must be said about uh, consciousness and about the nature of this awakening and about the purpose for humanity uh, that is not included in those first two books, Proof of Heaven and The Map of Heaven. Uh, and we're hoping to finish that book so that it might come out late in 2016 or maybe in early 2017. Uh, but that's our goal. And. You know, what it sounds like to me is, as you were saying, with more of the collective consciousness and all of these stories and all of these people coming back, and it's not just, you know, your story or somebody else's, but in trying to remind people and bringing people back to this concept of love, do you feel that so many of these experiences are happening amongst the collective consciousness to help consciousness evolve as a whole? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, from my point of view, <clears throat> all of our religious and spiritual teachings uh, over the last many thousands of years have come from such journeyers. Every bit of it came through a prophet or mystic or a seer. Uh, that's how the, these lessons have been taught to us. Now, it turns out that for much of human history, um, that's about all we had to rely on were those uh, uh, occasional reports from journeyers that got out there. Uh, and the fact that uh, Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad uh, and others could could speak their truth of love and of this uh, incredible, uh, compassionate uh, deity, this infinitely powerful deity. But then it turns out there was a big uh, shift in the game in the mid-20th century when doctors came up with ways to resuscitate cardiac arrest patients. What that has done is populated this world with tens of millions of souls who have been to the other side. And that's all since the late 1960s. And that is no accident. Mm. Uh, this is all an awakening. In fact, I would say the Internet is there for this very specific purpose, to spread these uh, stories of individual awakening to help this whole world wake up to a much deeper truth. And I believe it has to do with the fact that we are long overdue 
for uh, basically bringing that infinitely healing power of unconditional love into this world and manifesting as a rule love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy for all fellow beings. I came to realize in my journey that that God, the God that I called Om because of the sound that I heard deep in that core realm, that that Om, that God loves all, loves Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, skeptics, that God loves all. And that is a crucial part of this awakening that must come to us now. The false uh, message of separation that comes from fundamentalists, uh, whether they be religious fundamentalists or the fundamentalists of uh, materialist science, um, is very separative, and that's false, because there is one universe, and each and every one of us as a loving, conscious being is very much part of that universe without any real separation. And that's what we can come to know in deep meditation. And that's the lesson that we are here to learn now and awaken to, because humanity and, and life on Earth can join a much grander club. But to do so, we must let go and abandon our primitive, uh, false, barbaric, warring, and violence-ridden ways. We must learn to love each other and one another now. It's the most important lesson for all of humanity, and it's a lesson that's long overdue to be fully assimilated. Yeah. And we're also big fans of uh, The Wizard of Oz. And I like that you quote that where you said, deep down, we already know just as Dorothy and The Wizard of Oz always had the capability to return home. That's right. And we are there. Heaven is here where we are. But we have to come to remember that and know that that love is within us and that all of us can manifest that love. Uh, you know, heaven is not out there somewhere and God is not somewhere else. Uh, God and heaven are right here where we are, and that's a big part of this awakening and learning the truth of our oneness and the connectedness of all consciousness, and that it has infinite power to heal. And have people ever um, shared with you that while they were reading your books that they had a personal experience happen during the middle of reading? Yes, I would say many people have. Many people say that my book kind of throws itself into their hands and uh, they find it in the most unusual circumstances. And I've heard many beautiful stories of how it was given uh, to someone, say, by a homeless person as a gift uh, from the homeless person to the uh, recipient and uh, other just beautiful stories of, of how it's been passed around to others. And uh, to me, that's very heartening. But the, the deepest joy is that we're all in this together. Uh, and the more it can help to awaken people all around this world, uh, the more we can all kind of come together in this knowing. And that, that's really the most beautiful gift of all. And I get to see that everywhere I go. I get to uh, see the results with uh, kind of the bliss and the, and the knowing of people that we are eternal spiritual beings, that our loved ones, uh, once they've left the physical world, are not gone. They are with us, and we just have to be open to that, and we can cultivate that relationship with them. Uh, through deep meditation and centering prayer. Yeah, and I, I actually, I had an interesting experience while I was reading your book. That's why I asked that question. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, as I was reading Proof of Heaven, this feeling of just 
being very calm, very hopeful was coming over me, just hearing your story. And it just felt like, yes, you know, this is, this is right. Almost like that sense of coming back home, I guess Uh is the best way to explain it. And in the middle of that, and I'm, I'm just like eating this up and just feeling so great while I'm reading it, I get a text message from a client of mine telling me that she had just found out that her boyfriend was killed in a drunk driving accident. And it was, it was just such a weird moment for me because here I am reading your book and I'm, I'm in that place where you were and what you described and feeling it and feeling as if I've come home. And then all of a sudden this, this shock happens all at the same time. And there was almost like a small awakening right Uh there in that moment for me because while I was feeling that energy through your words, I couldn't naturally react maybe how I would have in the past. Right. Because there right. was that, that peace and that knowing. And it kind of gave me a gift in some ways to be able to soothe this client and to, you know, calm her down and almost to find the right words. But in a sense of, you know, like you said, like heaven is here and that we are loved and that it's okay and that everything is connected. Um, well, yes, it's so important to realize one thing my journey showed me is the hardships and difficulties and hurdles in life. And you know, as a physician, I would say that certainly includes illness and injury uh, and fatality, that, that, that all of those um, hardships are really gifts because that's what enables our souls to grow. And it's by manifesting that, that love for ourselves and for others, by remembering that we are eternally connected with our loved ones. Um, that is really the lesson we're here to learn and teach. Mm-hmm. And so those hardships, as difficult as they are when, when we're in the midst of them, are what provide the energy for our growth, for the ascendance of our soul groups. And uh, I, I learned this most readily from people who have lost children. And what I came to realize, and in every one of their sharing, no matter how far along or not far along they were in their grieving process, they were always telling me a story of a great teacher in the form of that very young child that was lost too soon. And that that teacher was here to remind us of our eternal connections all through love. And the more I heard that story in many different forms from people who had lost children, the more I came to realize the deep truth of it. And that it has everything to do with coming to know that if we're willing to learn the lesson, no matter how dark and deep the valley and how apparent the evil that we will be able to learn the lesson and then walk in the light and love on the ridge high above um, simply by learning that lesson. And that's what we're here to do. This is soul school. So this is where we learn and teach those lessons. And they're often uh, generated out of those extreme hardships that we face. Yes, and I think that's kind of a great message to wrap up on. And we are just so excited that we're able to bring this message to our listeners and to have you on our show, you know, to be able to really deliver the bigger purpose here of, of what your story is really about. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I'd like for people to visit me on ebonalexander.com. Also, for more information, they can go to IANDS, I-A-N-D-S dot org. That's International Association of Near-Death Studies dot org and also Eternia, E-T-E-R-N-E-A dot org, another beautiful site uh, that helps to educate people about the physics of consciousness, synthesis of science and spirituality, uh, and they can tell their own spiritual uh, transformative journeys there at Eternia dot org. 
So those sites are worth visiting and sacredacoustics.com for those who want to learn more about the meditation. Yeah, wonderful. And I'm sure our listeners are going to want to listen to this podcast a couple of times because you also gave some great references of other authors and other studies that have been done. So I thank you for sharing that with our listeners as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me, April. It's good talking with you. Yeah, same here, Dr. Alexander. Okay. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.